Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers. But please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I'm pleased to be joined today and have the chance to introduce the Ruminati herd to um, Nick Norwitz. Um, thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me. Always love a good conversation. Perfect. So I got introduced to you through Mark Kukazella, who posted uh, a link to your story. Uh, Food is Medicine, I think, is a subtitle of it. Um, and I was just deeply, deeply impressed by, first of all, your personal experience. And so I'd, I'd love to spend some time on that as well as where that's all leading you now today. Um, so thanks yeah. for the opportunity. Well, thanks for, for having me come talk. I'm, I'm very uh, new and junior to a lot of the people that you have on. Um, and in a bit of a peculiar position, and I'll describe why. So, you know, I grew up, I'm 25 years old for context, you know, during the, and after the, the low fat fad craze, like that's always been what's ingrained in my mind. What people now think of standard as healthy, that had been ingrained in my mind my entire life. And so I've been eating like that my whole life and, um, and then started getting quite sick. Um, I thought I, I looked on the surface very healthy until about age 18. So, um, I was, you know, a very competitive athlete. I was, um, at 17, the youngest qualifier for the Boston marathon. And my first ever real injury was I was training for the Boston marathon, the 2014 marathon. And I had a, a fracture in my right tibia. And, and, and that was the first of my osteoporotic fractures. So over the subsequent years, I just developed more and more fractures and I actually was diagnosed with full-blown osteoporosis, which for a young age? guy, I was diagnosed at 20. I started developing it at 18, which is weird because, I mean, I was a normal body weight, normal body fat. Like I ate well, I had no family history of osteoporosis and it was just weird. It's like, why would a young guy get osteoporosis? Yeah. Yeah, um, you said you ate well, but maybe I, that's I, ate well I ate, by. I, I ate I ate well in terms of I wasn't underweight, and I ate enough. So um, I should probably apply context to that too. What I ended up getting labeled with the diagnosis of exclusion, air quotes, is when after all the tests and screens, even though I had normal hormone panels and everything, the the thing that one could go to is it's called relative energy deprivation in sports syndrome which is basically like saying, oh, you just weren't having enough calories to fuel your exercise. And so that's what in, in medicine, sometimes you get, it's called a diagnosis of exclusion. We couldn't figure out what it, it is, so we're gonna say it's this. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't think it necessarily fit my profile, but I had nothing better to do. And I was also more or less a kid. So you just wanna believe in, in a paternalistic medicine, medical system that can fix you. And my doctors were wonderful, nothing against them. Um, but there just wasn't, you know, a clear answer given, uh, their education and background. So that was strike one against me. And that was tough, you know, to be someone who loved running. It was my passion and to think I'm going to do this for the next 60 years and, and, you know, well, for the rest of my life. So to lose that was difficult. And then, you know, I just kept doing what I was doing. I, I complied with the recommendations, just eat more. Um, even though it made me feel pretty uncomfortable, I'd literally be getting calls from like nutritionists saying, you know, have you had your fifth serving of carbs today? Like calories at all costs. Like, yeah, have your sugar and fudge. It like, we're encouraging this. And, um, by the end of college, I went to Dartmouth college. I, um, I developed ulcerative colitis, which is an inflammatory bowel disease. So that developed right at the end of college. And that really did make life, um, insufferable. I used to be very private about, um, that because it's kind of an embarrassing condition, like osteoporosis, weak bones. Okay. 
But um, people don't like to talk about their you know, gut issues because it's bathroom-related and quite embarrassing. Um, but it, 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 I, I've been more um, – I've spoken more about it since just because I just think it, it, it represents a struggle that a lot of people go through. So you know, to give you a picture, I was – I'm very nerdy. I have never had trouble with uh, like the academics and the tests, but I remember going into exams. And everybody's like studying before the exam, stressed about choosing the right answer. And I'm not worried about that at all, but I'm terrified of having to run out mid-exam because I'm having like a flare. And in the, the uh, context of colitis, a flare means you're going to basically bleed out your butt. And that's not very fun. Um, and so my every day was like that, including the, the I will never forget the cortisol spike associated with my graduation day because I was the valedictory speaker. And that required speaking in front of 11,000 people live, and it was being recorded. Um, and so I just remembered, like, I can't eat. I just said, I'm not going to eat for 24 hours, mm-hmm. and I'm going to do an enema. Like, I have to get my system clear that cannot be a problem. Um, and mm-hmm. nobody knew about it, not until a couple months ago did like, even my, my family uh, know about it because I just wouldn't talk about that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But that's what life was like day in and day out until – um, I went to Oxford. So I graduated Dartmouth in 2018 and then got a scholarship to go to um, Oxford University to study metabolism and neurodegenerative disease. Ended up being a ketogenic metabolism PhD, but I'll get to that in a bit. And um, when I moved there, um, you know, I continued doing what I was doing. I actually lived next to a fudge shop and I would just hit it up routinely. And I got encouragement for that. Like I, I ate a lot of fudge. Um, and it, also I should know, I at no point in my entire life was overweight, even eating all this crap. So it wasn't like, you know, that per se was an issue for me, if anything, the opposite. But, um, shortly after arriving at Oxford, continuing to, to live the life I was living, I had a really severe flare to the point that I lost 15% of my body weight in a couple of weeks. And then one night at 2 a.m., a ambulance, the university had to call an ambulance to rush me to the John Radcliffe Hospital in the NHS. Yeah, yeah now 15% of your body weight, you... Uh, I'm small. If, yeah, from the videos, you are a lean individual. I'm assuming you were somewhat like that to begin with. So 15% is... I, yeah. I've never had a BMI above 22. Even when I was like trying to pound down cookies and sugar in school, we had all these... fudge, meat. yeah. And fudge. So I, you know, I've, I've, I've never had that problem. So I was, I was, I was lean. I dropped down. I mean, my BMI dropped to like, well, I don't know. It was like at the lowest was uh, like 17.5 or something. So it's like, it was low. It was, but the thing is I had just no, I had no body fat to begin with. So even when my BMI was higher, my body fat, um, at least on calipers, on the decks, it was higher, obviously, but on calipers and stuff, it was like 3%, 4%. So I had no buffer room. Mm. Um, and so, you know, when I'm dropping mass, it's like including lean mass and I felt horrible. Um, so yeah, I got rushed to the, the hospital. They actually ended up putting me in the palliative care ward. So the death ward, um, because they incidentally found out that I had a heart rate in the twenties, which is absurdly low. It's like that of an elephant and they didn't have anywhere to put me because it's a strained system. So they put me in the palliative care ward, hooked me up to a bunch of monitors. Um, and that was just the worst three days of my life because I couldn't sleep. The alarm would go off anytime my heart rate dropped into the twenties. They couldn't fix that alarm problem. Plus they had put stuff like catheters in my arm that they, a lot of them didn't even end up using. And then there were demented patients just running around screaming. I think a person died there or two people. Maybe it's a little foggy because I just wasn't sleeping. And then after all of that, um, and I, and I, and I, I try to be respectful of physicians because most of the physicians that have cared for me have been wonderful people and I have the utmost respect for them. But I just remember getting the diagnosis of exclusions. There's another diagnosis of exclusion that came back after three days. And I was told that, oh, I have bradycardia because of my uh, turmeric supplements. So my gastroenterologist had basically said, you know, turmeric, curcumin, the spice, you can take it, it's anti-inflammatory and it maybe will help with your gut. So I'm taking a standard dose, 1.5 grams per day, two times a day for six months. And then she finds like a case report of somebody in Mexico that had acute turmeric poisoning. And so it's like, oh, that's why your heart rate's in the 20s. Okay. You're kind of like an athlete, you know, and you already had a lowish heart rate. And, and, that, and that did it. And I'm just, 
I'm a little exasperated because I have like no perfusion to my brain. Even I can tell you like, this is ridiculous. Like I've been here also for three days, which is 12 times the half-life of curcumin in the plasma. So explain to me how my heart rate's still in the 20s. And I was discharged. Yeah. I was actually discharged with a heart rate in the 20s. And my mother had flown over because she was scared for my life. And she can confirm that. Um, and so I just, after all that, after like the osteoporosis, the colitis, and then having a heart rate that low, I, I really was kind of shot of hope. So I went back to my room and I just like laid in my bed um, for a while, just thinking about it because it's, uh, I still, I'm still pretty young, but I, I still felt very much like medicine, conventional medicine should be able to fix me. Why isn't it fixing me? But at some point when you do lose hope, you kind of get desperate. And when you get desperate, you're willing to try anything. So I tried anything and everything, including basically any diet you can think of. And so I went through a variety of diets, like um, specific carbohydrate diet, low FODMAP diet, gluten-free, casein-free, uh, vegetarian and vegan. And uh, the, the diet that I was probably most hesitant to try, even though I was studying metabolism, was a, a ketogenic diet just because of the media environment that I had grown up in. Like, separate from the, the, the conscious aspect, there is a visceral repulsion to the idea of a high-fat diet among a lot of people. And so I, I, I you know, I, I was reluctant to try it, but I was also at the point where like, I have no expectations, but nothing to lose. So I mm -hmm. tried it and, you know, your, your listeners probably weren't, aren't surprised to hear that. It really did basically save my life. Within a week, my colitis symptoms were gone. My inflammation markers also had dropped in coincidence with my symptoms improving. So like within a week, my calprotectin had dropped to the, it's a fecal marker of inflammation to its lowest ever it was three times high normal and it went not only into the, the normal healthy safe range, but like the lower end of it. And it just stayed there. Mm. And I progressively came off my medications and it still just stayed there. And I've remained on the diet since I've never had an issue with the quietest flare mm. since. And I've okay. been previously on like the prednisone, like, um, suppositories and, you know, first line anti-inflammatories never on a biologic, but they hadn't kept me in remission. Mm. And so, um, then I started really digging into the space thinking, oh, I'm, I'm a zebra. I'm an all ball. Uh, and this is unique. I'm glad I found something that worked for me, but I'm unique. <laughs> and the most remarkable part about my story, this is a quote I use over and over again. The most remarkable part about my story is that I'm not unique at all. And when I figured that out, that was the eye opening moment where my perspective of what medicine is and what it could be just shifted. Mm -hmm. We can get into that, but I've been talking a lot. So I'm going to yeah. give you some air. So um, what was your entry point to keto? Was there a person or an organization that was your sort of gateway into it or how did you find out about it? Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of it through, um, the internet, actually some of my neurogeneration research, one of the things that cropped up when I was, um, getting all these tests and scans was that I was actually at high genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease. I had read a little bit of the research on keto and Alzheimer's. I've dug into it a lot more since, but I was like, oh, I'm actually concerned about my long-term brain health. Like, that's the one thing I definitely, if I, if I lose my sports, if I, like, life is crap, like, I just, I, I pride myself on that, and I do enjoy the academics. So that scared me a little bit, and I thought, oh, you know, this is something, you know, it might be a complementary lifestyle for my brain, and then I started thinking about my gut and delving into that, and it's like, this this could be a solution for a lot of things that are ailing me. But, um, you know, what really did it for me was I met with a, a, a doctor in the States, um, a contrarian doctor, Dr. Vivian Lowe. She had actually helped my dad lose some weight. So she runs an obesity clinic. And um, I, I brought this up with her. And I had felt embarrassed to bring these some of these topics up with other physicians, not like the bloody diarrhea, but the topic of like, you know, I'm in my 20s and I'm worried about Alzheimer's disease because I had mentioned that before to other people and they basically like, we, it's not an actionable, you know, gene that you found and let's just brush it off. That's a problem for future you. I'm like, well, I don't want to wait. And she was the first person to actually look at the whole me, look at me uh, like systemically as, you know, a whole metabolic organism, not specific organs and, and say, you know, basically give me permission. She didn't push it, but gave me permission, gave me the option of a ketogenic diet, which had never been even provided to me before the words been used. It had never come up in any discussion among the dozens of doctors that I've met, despite the literature, which is quite astonishing. 
And so she gave permission to try it. And like I said, I was willing to try anything. So I tried it and then it worked. So you started that healing. Mm -hmm. You said you're 25 now. I'm 25 now. And so I was, I was, it was on my 23rd birthday. I had my heart, my heart was in the 20, uh, in the, in the twenties. So it's been uh, a bit, a bit over two years. Wow. Um, and it's just my, my, I've done more learning and growing in the past two years than I had had probably from the previous 10 years, hmm. all things considered. And it's just been the whole experience uh, as a, as a, as a patient and now as a, somebody who's helping other people in this space or educating in this space, um, I've learned so much more from that than I did at Dartmouth, at Oxford, doing my PhD, and probably will learn in medical school. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I know, like the, the time frame of two plus years sounds so minuscule to develop any degree of expertise in this area, but I live for this. Like I wake up at five, just like and start day day reading papers and wanting to put together lectures and. Um, running blogs, I'm writing a book, I'm, you know, giving grand round lectures. I'm just like, I'm in this space, in this headspace 24 seven. And I love it. I am a little bit of a workaholic, but one of those workaholics that like, I'm excited about every single project that I do yeah. uh, and answering every question that I can on whatever platform, be it YouTube, Twitter, Clubhouse. It's just, it really has become my self-determined purpose to make metabolic medicine, ketogenic medicine more ma mainstream. So that's like an option for people. So they don't have to go through the suffering and the desperation to just say like, here, this is something you can try. You don't have to, might not be for everybody, but this is something that is evidence-based that you can try. Right. And that's what frustrates me, that it was never even presented as an option. Um, yes, a, a, a long-term in this space friend of mine, uh, Adele Hyde, talks about the reaction of patients in a diabetes ward who became introduced to therapeutic carbohydrate reduction. And they're like, why did it take yeah. this long? Why didn't we know about this? And yeah. so carrying that message, um, I encourage you. It, it's awesome to see. I, I, I want to encourage and forgive me, but young people, um, you know, get, get, I'm not offended by that into this. Well, you know, you know, in my day, um, of course I remember before cell phones. So, um, but like you said, your entire life has been marinated in the conventional wisdom about diet and chronic yeah. disease. Nice word. Uh, pardon? That nice word play. Yeah, thank you. Um, and and so I'm coming at this. I know people who have struggled with some of what you're describing, and you know, it's like, can we just get this information more widely known? That there's this option. You don't have to take it, but you should at least be aware of it. How can you yeah. have an informed conversation if you don't know the information? Yeah. Um, so it, it, I can understand your a bit of your passion. I, I have my own from a slightly different perspective. Um, and, and you mentioned metabolic medicine, and that's kind of... For anybody who hasn't like been around this space much, they might think, well, wait a minute, isn't all medicine about metabolism? I mean, after all, medicine is supposed to make you healthy and to be healthy, your metabolism should be functioning properly. So isn't that what medicine is concerned about? But apparently not. No, I, I would define metabolic medicine as, um, you know, I'm a, uh, a healthcare approach that's centered around interventions that address the root causes of disease. So things like inflammation, oxidative stress, insulin resistance, addressing those. And then downstream of that, you improve, you actually treat the root disease as opposed to bandaging it up symptomatically. And I don't think medicine, most conventional medicine is 
uh, metabolic in nature. I think it's more symptomatic bandaging. It addresses components of metabolism, but like at the very end of the process. So diabetes is a great example. You know, you, you're trying to control blood sugar. So rather than addressing the issues with hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance, you just get more insulin. That's a symptomatic bandage that inevitably leads to the progression of the disease, which is why it's so frustrating for patients. So you're talking about Adele Height, talking about, uh, I love Adele, by the way, um, patients' reactions. It's just like when you're told that your disease is progressive and irreversible, you know, that's, that's worse than just the disease itself because then you're, you're basically being stripped of hope. And you're saying, here's a you know, medication to manage it, but it's going to get worse. And the fact that there are controlled trials showing that you know, lifestyle interventions, quote, metabolic medicine, specifically therapeutic carbohydrate reduction in ketogenic diets can reverse diabetes, even in advanced patients with greater than 50% efficacy. When you become aware of that, like you are so grateful, but you're like, you're, you're, and, and, and honestly, you're happy for yourself. At least I'm, I'm extrapolating from my own experience. I'm happy for myself, given where I am. I'm very grateful for that. But I'm frustrated for other people because I know other people are going through this right now. What I suffer through, and it's just completely unnecessary. And, and, that's, and that's where I get, I get, I get uh, upset. And I'm, I'm just in a tricky position because... You know, I'm about to embark on a standard medical education um, at, at Harvard Med. And, and there are things that I'm going to be taught that are just, you know, conventional practice. And I'm, I feel caught in the position of thinking, well, am I overly biased because of my experiences? Or are, is convention biased because they haven't had? these experiences, which are becoming more and more prevalent yes. as diabetes and Alzheimer's and obesity are on the rise. Yeah. And yeah. so you see that when people have these quote conversion experiences right. that they become what appears to be like evangelical about it and then push other people away that haven't had experiences. But I don't think it's evangelism per se. I think it's frustrated concern. Like yeah. When you have the, the keto crazies run at you, like you have to do this, you have to do this. Like it's going to change your life. It sounds crazy. And it's not the best mode of communication, but it's because I feel like they, it's frustrated concerns. Like, why isn't this message, why isn't this option, the message out there yeah. when it has so much potential? I, the, the line that I recently found in, and posted was the truth will set you free, but first it first will piss, you, piss off. you off. I saw that. That was great. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was what came to me when I read Good Calories, Bad Calories. Um, and then hopefully I've progressed to something that's more useful than being pissed off because that's not helpful in terms of communicating and, mm -hmm. and building bridges and, and getting this information more widely known. But that concern for people, um, that ought to be animating us. And it's yeah. it's fair to ask am i biased and yeah un go with that everyone is yeah. show me a man without a point of view and i'll show you a corpse i mean of course <laughs> we're biased um but i think the other line from um the case for keto is and i forget where he got it from but if you're facing the choice between your experience and a hypothesis go with your experience you know, that, that that should have weight in the conversations, right? Because it's apparently contradicting what people have put forward as not even a theory, just this is, this is what we think. And so, okay, yeah. I get it. That's what you think. This is what happened to me. Now, how do we reconcile those when they're so different? Yeah, I mean... I think it's a little, it's even more complicated than that because, okay, you're always going to say vote with your gut, go with your experience. But as someone who always, I, you know, I try to live my life like a scientist, which means a true scientist is trying to disprove their null hypothesis. You have a model, you try to break it. 
you don't stick with what's comfortable. So I have like a personal policy, let's say around diet. I won't comment on a diet that I have not tried and tried to make it work. But I have tried basically every diet at this point. That's why I tried carnivore at one point. I'm like, even when I was keto, I'm like Mediterranean keto. I'm like, this carnivore thing, like, it's dumb. Like, I, I can't imagine it's optimal, but I'm seeing stories from, you know, Sean Baker and Michaela Peterson. I'm like, you know, I realize I'm biased against this. So like the next four months, I'm carnivore. I'm going to try to make it work. And I just live my life like that. But um, that was a tangent. What I meant to say, get back to was the experience is backed by data. It's not just personal anecdotes. And that's what, you know, makes me a little bit more convinced that it's going to sound arrogant, but I'm right. Because when I have discussions with, you know, uh, conventional MDs or PhDs, it's like, all right, here are my data. I want to see yours and I want to question your data. And I just feel like that conversation is very one-sided. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, like me, before I tried this, it's just this visceral response to what, you know, high fat diet is, is compared to uh, conventional, the conventional approach. And yet there's a dissonance because the, the conventional approach isn't working. Yeah, we just push it harder and harder. It's like, okay, USDA dietary guidelines get implemented. Obesity um, accelerates in its increase. Diabetes is going through the roof. Alzheimer's is going through the roof. Okay, so let's just push this harder. Let's just push conventional wisdom harder. I think it was Albert Einstein who said, you know, insanity is, is – tr- I'm going to botch the quote, but it's something about insanity being something that, you, you know, you keep trying the same thing uh, yeah. even though it's not working. So it, it's just weird to me because if, if we could just agree at least that what we are doing is not at all working, what other options are there that would open up the conversation? But I don't think people are open to that conversation. It just becomes a game of patient blaming and you yeah. know, also fat shaming with respect yeah. to the obesity problem. So I, somebody a while ago just pointed out – it's it, – just as I want people to differentiate between human nutrition and animal nutrition, I'm going to suggest that animal nutrition is far more rigorous in its approach and has better data than perhaps we can ever hope to have in human nutrition, just for ethical considerations amongst many others. If we're talking about acute medicine versus chronic medicine, it, it it's it's yeah. almost like we've got two different animals to talk about. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I mean, our system is built for acute medicine. Like, you know, uh, giving someone a banana if they're, uh, you know, hypoglycemic and have diabetes, that'll fix them acutely. Mm-hmm. You know, having a breakfast of bananas and oatmeal and orange juice every morning probably isn't good for their long-term health. You know, and, and, and it's just because we've evolved the medical system from – you know, trying to treat infectious diseases, which we've gotten pretty good at in general. I know there's the irony of the, the COVID pandemic, but in general, we're pretty good at trying, treating infectious diseases. We cannot treat chronic metabolic diseases well at all. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not trying to adapt our approach to these new uh, disorders that are really crippling society. We just try to, you know, do the drug approach. And why would that work? I mean, as the, the the archetypal example is Alzheimer's disease. It's like you have a, a a condition, a disease state that manifests over, it develops over decades, only then to manifest, and sophisticated enough to dismantle the most complex three pound piece of matter in the known universe. And you think that you can develop a single drug to target like a single protein or pathway to fix it? Hmm. Like why why would that work? And that's why, you know, I think these approaches, these drugs, they fail because they're always doomed to fail. Now, if somebody comes up with a stem cell therapy that reverses Alzheimer's disease, like in the next 50 years, I'm happy to throw all my research in the trash Mm. because that would be phenomenal. And maybe it'll happen. Mm -hmm. That would be great. And I think conventional medicine is amazing at what it can do and has a place, but we need to make a place for metabolic medicine because best thing would be to just prevent disease and suffering in the first place. And also it's, I think a tool that's very much in reach. Yeah. I, I'm becoming increasingly aware of the burden of metabolic disease globally. Mm-hmm. 
people use phrases and frequently it comes with a mindset that says this is a high income country issue. And the reality is this is low, middle and high income country issue. And and as as much of a strain as it puts on high income countries, imagine what it does when resources are even more constrained and it's a far different reality. Um, you know, the statistics about, for example, every 30 seconds, someone in the world loses a lower leg due to diabetes, you know, so we're going to talk for an hour. So there's 30 people. And when that happens, first of all, we know the prognosis for lifespan for that patient. But then think about what happens when that's a person in a lower middle income country. Yeah. It's... Um, so diminished life diminished quality of life, diminished productivity, all of those things come into what I think ought to be a legitimate consideration of sustainability from yeah. a more holistic point of view. But it's interesting that you brought up the acute versus chronic disease management because that actually parallels the economic incentive structure of our medical system. Because right now, the way we have it is, you know, patients and insurance pay hospitals for procedures and drugs. So in the short term, sick patients make money. Mm -hmm. I'm not blaming hospitals. I'm not blaming doctors. It's, that is just the incentive structure. Sick patients make money. Mm -hmm. um, healthy patients don't necessarily. And so when you, when you talk about the costs, quote, costs of things like diabetes or Alzheimer's, which are each about $1 billion per day in the United States, that cost is shifted on to people with these conditions like diabetes. Diabetes, you know, insulin costs $900 a month now. And, you know, it, it's people bearing the burden rather than the government. Whereas, say, in the UK, with a uh, national health system, the government bears the burden. So there's actually an incentive, more of an incentive to have value-based long-term care. That's what uh, recently... Um, Dr. Unwin showed that like you could save the NHS millions and millions of pounds by focusing on, you know, a low carb approach to diabetes. Yeah, yeah. But in the United States, you don't have that same incentive structure. So it perpetuates yeah. this, you know, symptomatic bandaging, basically keeping people sick and getting them sicker in the short term. But in the long term, guess what? It's going to still cripple America. Well, right. I mean, just... I've heard that you could, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pay for the treatment of downstream, you know, chronic diabetes, but we won't pay for the effective dietary intervention upstream. Like, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And it, I mean, that, that trends, that goes to the personal level as well, because sometimes you know, people say like, you know, get doing like a clean keto diet is too expensive. First of all, for a lot of people, they're just being silly because they're like, I don't want to pay extra for grass-fed beef and they're going to spend $7 on a Starbucks coffee. For people in, in abject poverty, that I think is a very fair statement. And I think that's an issue, but that's again, a government issue because basically we're subsidizing seed oils and sugar. Literally most snap dollars go to, uh, Soda, it's the number one bought thing, 10% mm. of SNAP dollars. So the government's, uh, you know, subsidizing sugar, let's shift those subsidies. But um, again, to what you said, it's about making a little bit of investment in your health upfront rather than down the line. So, you know, people at Oxford, they'd ask me, you know, why are you, why are you getting this, like, say, grass-fed beef? It costs a little bit more. Does it really make a difference? I'm like, well... I'd rather pay a little bit more for good food now than pay another two thousand dollars out of pocket to have a scope stuck up my butt for a colonoscopy because that's mm -hmm. not fun, and I've had to do that multiple times. Mm -hmm. but I've learned from personal experience it's better to just invest a little bit in your health. Mm -hmm. You feel better, you're happier, and in the long term, it saves you money. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. So there's a lot of um, okay. We. And this is all – so what What took you to Oxford because you had this crisis in Oxford. Mm -hmm. So what was it that got you to go to Oxford initially and then did things change over the course of your time there with this yeah. tremendous event in the middle of it? Yeah. 
was actually the beginning of it, but it was really oh. serendipity. So I was graduating um, undergrad at Dartmouth, and I, I, I knew I wanted to go into med school. And uh, usually people take time off. So I always plan to take just time off to maybe just a year. And so I, I was encouraged to apply, apply to some of the UK fellowships, you know, funding opportunities and also med school. So I, I happened to just get lucky and um, I got a scholarship to go to Oxford uh, that I accepted prior to getting to Harvard Med. So then I asked them if they could, you know, give me a deferral and they gave me a three-year deferral to go to Oxford and do my PhD, which seemed like a good deal. I get a kind of free vacation to Oxford or paid for vacation. And then I do a PhD in a few years and then I can go do my MD and be an MD PhD by 30. I was just like, you know, cool. Why not? Um, so, you know, I was just being an opportunist and I found the research just very interesting. I was, I've always been interested in the brain. Um, my, my interest did broaden though, after my, uh, experience, my episode, because I started to delve into the diet and lifestyle aspect more so than just, we were actually, of all things, we were using ketones, but exogenous ketones. And so we were in a very pro-exogenous ketone group on exercise, but also brain health. So I was running clinical trials in Parkinson's disease. Um, but then I started to really focus uh, on the, the nutrition aspects and the far-reaching metabolic aspects. So while I was there, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I got my PhD done. I did the work I needed to do, but in the meantime, I was writing papers on osteology and lipidology, gastroenterology, and just all these different fields because the privilege of being in a place like Oxford, which is just a total academic amusement park, is the people you get to talk to, like the things you get to explore, the resources you have. And so I would like quantum bounce around, um, topics like i would just delve into my friend like oh let's come up with this like multi-loop model of alzheimer's disease let's talk about like the type 3 diabetes thing but also parkinson's and also alzheimer's and then like oh let's describe this like you know uh wind syndrome and this weird case of you know a bone disorder or let's explore the impact of ketogenic diets on you know subfractionated lipids you just bounce around and you just have all this time to explore things so doing that writing cookbooks it was just a really cool time to explore all the different niches that I could mm -hmm. in the um, low carb uh, space. And it was just, it was a lot of fun and I'm still kind of in it. In fact, I have more time now because I haven't quite started med school. And so, I mean, that's what I do day in and day out, that quantum bounce around, like reading whatever heck papers that people suggest that I might delve into on the clubhouse or Twitter or whatever. It's a great mm -hmm. privilege and I'm just, you know, excited to be learning about this uh, as much as I can. Yeah, so osteoporosis diagnosis at age 18, how is your bone health these days? Um, a lot better. So I no longer have osteoporosis. Um, again, like I said before, um, conventional medicine has a place. So actually after the diagnosis, because we had that quote diagnosis of collusion, relative energy deprivation in sports, but it, it didn't really fit. And so my, 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 um, my, my endocrinologist agreed with me that it was, it was a little bit, my, I have a peculiar case. So one really um, spectacular mentor, one of the ones that they gave me that diagnosis, she helped me get a position at MGH to study, you know, bone drugs for a summer. So actually, you know, along with her, we developed a, a sequential therapy. I mean, we didn't develop the drugs, but I, I, I was on two drugs, teriparatide and uh, denosumab for my bones. So those helped. But the interesting thing was um, that they helped build certain bones. Those were the, like the trabecular rich bones. So there's spongy bone on the inside and then cortical bone, which is the hard shell on the outside. And different bones have different amounts. So the spine is mostly trabecular. So what I was seeing on these drugs is an increase in spine bone mass density, which was originally over three standard deviations below normal, negative 3.2, 3.3. So like it was genuine osteoporosis. This is not hyperbole. Um, but my hip and my femur, which are more cortical, they weren't really increasing, even on these powerful drugs. When I went keto, even though I lost weight and cut carbs, which supposedly are supposed to be bad for your bones, the spine kept them going up and then the hip and femur started increasing. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say keto alone cured my osteoporosis, mm -hmm. but it definitely seems complementary to improvements in bone. And there are a few things in the realm of low carb where it's like 
question marks. Could it have these negative side effects? Because any intervention can have negative side effects. There two are cardiovascular health and bone health. Um, and at least in me, I don't think there have been uh, negative consequences of either. I, I'm, you know, probably about Dave uh, Feldman's lean mass hyperresponder. So I'm very much of that phenotype. So if I went to my standard lipid panel to a, uh, a, a general GP, they probably would uh, have a heart attack themselves. But yeah. when you dig into it. <laughs> okay. So that's your heart disease risk is the physician that sees your test, not you from the value. In my opinion at this time, I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm going to follow up with, in, in another three years, I'll get a follow-up CAC score. My baseline CAC was zero, but yeah. I'm quite young. So that, yeah. that doesn't really mean so much. I had to get it for a functional assay because I actually, one of the case reports I have was one on my own lipids. I, I, I intuited when I was reading the literature on this that something, you know, that the standard lipid panel would be a misrepresentation of what, what went on. So before I started keto, just before, I got a full subfractionated lipid panel um, with like NMR spectra and everything, and then basically predicted prospectively that there would be maybe an increase in LDL, but a decrease at the same time in small dense LDL and XYZ, and that's exactly what happened. So let me publish on that. The paper title was a standard lipid panel is insufficient for care of a patient on a ketogenic diet. It was in Frontiers of Medicine, which was, it was fun. And my, you know, like anything, anything you publish as an academic, you go back a year later and you're like, I agree with 90% of what I said, yeah. but yeah. now I, I think it's better. So if anybody does go read that paper and has qualms with it, I, I have qualms with it now too. So anyway, okay. that's just part of science and evolving. Yeah, fair enough. I've heard teachers say half of what I'm going to teach you is wrong, but we don't know which half it is. That was Arthur Kornberg, 1959 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine, one of my favorite quotes. There you go. Amazing. Um, so, okay, you've, doctor, um, <laughs> you've, <laughs> um, and, and you're anticipating entering uh, Harvard Medical School mm, yeah, in the summer. The in this summer, this summer. Uh, hopefully things are opening up again. And um, I won't say get back to normal because I'm not sure it was. And I don't want to go there if it was. But um, good luck with that. Meanwhile, you're, as you say, doing these con consults with people. Is that a fair description or just conversations? Yeah. or I would say... It, it, it transpired out of my work at Oxford when I was running clinical trials and just working with people. I would send them, they would ask for diet help because everybody wants that. And they, they figured I was, you know, I, I seemed to know this when I was, I wanted to talk and explain it. So we'd be sitting like in the, the trial room between tests and I, they would ask me questions and I would just have fun explaining it. But I didn't feel qualified to give nutrition advice. So I sent them to nutritionists. They kept coming back saying, this isn't working, this isn't working. Will you please just tell me? Like, can you, can you try? And I was really reluctant to do it. I really tried not to, but at the same point, I'm someone who just can't, you know, ignore a, a plea for help. If I think there's maybe something I could do. So then I did, I just started helping people informally, um, and realized it wasn't that hard. Uh, like it, it just, it wasn't that hard when you understood a little bit of the metabolism and I was having results in people like, you know, um, reversal of prediabetes or reversal of obesity, just un like universally, it was just universally successful, the approach provided I, you know, we hit row bumps, but what I would do my little quote practice, I'd say, you know, for the first while, I want you to send me pictures on WhatsApp of everything you eat. And I'm going to, you know, give critiques and feedback. And I'm not that, that hard. I mean, I can be harsh, but I'm, I'm a benevolent taskmaster, put it that way. Um, and, and it provided some educational resources and usually within four to eight weeks, the person would quote, graduate, be off on their own. And I would, you know, check in with them like six months later and they'd just be continually progressing and feeling amazing. So like mm -hmm. people saying, I never thought I'd be like dancing in my kitchen again. So they mm -hmm. you know, have obesity and like an inflamed hip and then they're just dancing in their kitchen or somebody, uh, told me that, you know, he always assumed diabetes and Alzheimer's were in his future. They were in his family and as part of the, the, the culture. He was uh, uh, from India and they just have a, you know, a high prevalence there. And he's like, I just was, I thought it was coming from you. You're just part of aging. And he's like, I realize now that's not the case. And also feel like I can break the cycle in my family for my daughter. And I had met his daughter 
brilliant little girl, like love penguins. And it was, those experiences were pretty transformative for me because I realized even now before being a, you know, a licensed MD, there are ways I can help people. And so I got a, a metabolic health practitioners uh, license through the Society for Metabolic Health Practitioners who I work with very closely. And now, you know, I, I do a lot of things, but I do really enjoy helping people, whether it be through a, a formal practice of sorts or be it through just like answering questions on Twitter and on blogs because, I don't know, it, it's a, an amazing learning opportunity for me because either I have the answers that can help people or somebody asks me a question I'm like, well, that's interesting. Now I have something to go chase with actual relevance to a human life. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I do, I do that. And I hope to continue it in some capacity during medical school. Um, all that with, of course, coming with a caveat that I tell people, look, look, I'm not a licensed uh, physician now. So anything I give you is not quote medical advice, but I'm happy to help you on your journey. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Brilliant. Um, yeah. so, uh, first of all, thank you for the time. Thank you for your openness and your willingness to, to, talk with somebody you hadn't met before. And, um, so I, I, I really appreciate that. And, and I hope that, um, what I hope people would get from this conversation is one, the power of, um, well, fair enough. It isn't all about nutrition, but nutrition is a huge part of, right. Uh, it, it, it feeds the other factors of, you know, the, the way I describe it, and um, I came up with this analogy, but I'm sure I'm not the first one to come up with it, is the idea of like the, the tree analogy. So, you know, if you think about all these different metabolic diseases as different branches on a tree, they each have different foliage, so the different leaves, and um, but they're connected by a common trunk, um, which are just, you know, these metabolic pathologies, insulin resistance, inflammation, oxidative stress. Uh, and then what are the roots that feed that trunk? Because those are what we need to address. We don't have a branch problem. What we're doing is going around trying to prune off some leaves. We have a roots problem. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of roots. You know, chronic stress, sleep deprivation, sedentary lifestyle. But I think the biggest root is nutrition. And that root also feeds all the other roots. Like if you're poorly nourished, you're going to be more likely to be stressed. You're not going to be able to you know, exercise. So I think it is the fundamental root. Mm-hmm. Um, in the biggest root feeding that that tree. So of course, you know, uh, entire lifestyle interventions from you know meditation to eating well are important. But if you're not properly nourished, you undermine basically everything else. Yeah, I mean, if, if you could, if you could do a study where you had identical twins and you had one of them enjoy the meals with family in whatever, you know, and then you took the other one and gave them exactly the same meal, but they had to like eat it in isolation. You know, it's, yeah. it, it, the social interaction is tremendously important as well, but um, I use the illustration of Liebig's barrel to say, you know, what's, what's the, the most, what's the greatest insult at this yeah. point? What's the limiting factor? That's an interesting thing. It, right, like 10 minutes before we, we got on, I was watching a lecture by um, uh, Professor Jay Shulkin. Um, and he was talking about, you know, uh, obesity and food culture and, 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 and said some things that got me thinking about the, you know, beneficial role, the evolutionary role of culture and food, because it, you know, made sense for food to be a bonding experience where we ate together, we shared, we nourished and, and, that's still a part of culture, but now the ultra processed foods and the sugar have poisoned that such that food culture is actually toxic. And, and I, I've said before, and I really stand by this, like a low carb ketogenic diet in and of itself, it's actually pretty easy. Like done right, it's, it's pretty easy, but it's the food environment and the culture, the food culture that makes it so difficult. Like sugar is poisoned food culture because now it's difficult socially, not just the environment, but it's just not accepted. And so I don't know. I think that's one of our biggest problems. How do we correct that? How is it ever going to be appropriate? I just can't even see like where I'm just going to go to a restaurant like and be like, no, I'm fasting tonight. Or like, um, can I order like the salmon and uh, like uh, macadamia oil mayo? Or like it just people look at you like, 
the hell are you doing? Yeah. Like, well, but there's, there's, there's some, I see, I mean, yeah. you know, so I've been on this thing now, 13 years, 14 years. And, um, things are very different than they were then. Yeah. Um, now I, I'm disappointed by the lack of progress. I'm disappointed that I'm still having to explain to people. It's not cow farts, you know, it, <laughs> stuff is still needing to be done. And to your point about what has happened to the food culture, I think part of it goes all the way back to these ideas that got us into this position in the first place, right? I mean, yeah. um, and so that then contaminates a lot more than the food culture itself. And so it all needs sort of appealing away so that we could get back to, um, you know, uh, in many levels. So, um, but I live in a town where, what are they, 4,000, 5,000 people within the city limits. And, you know, we've got a dedicated, the whole concern is gluten-free. There's like, and and so one is you get to see people with, you know, celiac and other gluten sensitivity come in and go, now what can I eat? And they say anything on the menu because... <laughs> and they're like free because they they don't have to go through that and and there are other forms and of course we've just gone through over a year where the pressure on those kinds of businesses has been crushing and how many of them will survive i don't know um we try to do our best to help them survive so um i i think i i tend toward the uh, um the the optimistic side and and part of that is to see people like yourself or some of the young scientists that i get to uh relate to in other spheres and just try to make sure that people are aware of information that maybe they weren't introduced to in their training yeah. Um, you know, I try to tell people that are just starting their career, you need to know this personally. You don't need to get involved in this professionally yet because you have other goals in mind as a, you know, yeah. tenure track. Um, yeah. And let the old farts take the arrows for this for a while. Um, but keep it in mind as, as we start doing some of this work to yeah. build a more end to end conversation about sustainable food systems i mean yeah. if if all you're interested in is caloric yield and carbon emissions grow sugarcane got yeah. any problems with that yeah a few i'd like to raise a few you know maybe it's worth having you know a little bit more emissions to have something more than just raw calorie yield um, you well, know, my understanding, and this is your expertise, so I want to ask you this question, is that's a little bit of a misperception that, say, you know, like even pound for pound, that, say, a Beyond Burger or a, a veggie-based burger is better for the environment than a, you know, a regenerative agriculture-based meat product, pound for pound. Because yeah. the ecosystem doesn't act just as more than a sink for the emissions that are generated, at least the CO2. Yeah. Today, if you look at the USDA, sorry, the EPA's sources and sink, you know, uh, budget, um, agriculture, forestry, and land use is one sector of industry that they look at. They also transportation and energy and others. Yeah. That sector is a net negative emitter. Yeah. So already today in the that United States. That includes factory farming? Because my understanding was factory farming, the way it was, you know, the way it's done, it actually is quite bad for the environment. No, but it, that doesn't sorry. actually... No. 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 That includes all of it. And uh -huh. in fact, and we probably should have gotten into this a little sooner. Um, <laughs> when we take a... So first of all, the emissions from any ruminant, the more fiber, the lower the digestibility, the higher the methane that's emitted. It's just part of the biology. Mm -hmm. Now, so when an animal goes into a feedlot situation. Uh, they get less fiber. 
they get less fiber, more digestible fiber, higher digestibility of the entire ration, their emissions yeah. go down. Yeah. There's also some other practices. Um, now, we also, on the other side, ought to say, yeah, but the emissions are biogenic. They're part of a carbon cycle, right? CO2 and photosynthesis fixed into plant matter. The animal eats it, some small portion of that gets burped out as methane. That gets oxidized to CO2 within about 10 years. Yeah. As opposed to the production of crops that emits far more of CO2 from burning fossil fuels. Yeah. It's very different. It's a very interesting. I mean, this is one of the tangential things that. I actually know very little about, but I'm very interested. And I am aware enough, at least, that you know, renewable agriculture and 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 eating even eating meat is not antithetical to environmental sustainability. And in fact, it might be required for it. And that's one of the things that is another big disconnect. That you know, I, I think, say, the the plant based movement it gets conflated with environmental sustainability and mm -hmm. and just an ethical approach. And I'm super sensitive to that. I feel like people think that meat-based people aren't, but I hate food waste. Like it, it, I'm known in my family as like the food Nazis. Like, can, can we compost? Like, we have compost, but like, can we throw this out? Like, this little bit extra, like, is Nick looking? People like try to hide it from me and they cannot because I just hate it. I just, especially yeah. with animal proteins, it's like if an animal died to give you that, like, it's just, it, it boggles my mind not to, to consume yeah. it. So like, yeah. I, you know. So clearly, like that's why food I, I was like buying all the heads yeah. of the fish. I'm like, I'll eat them. Like, don't throw them out. Sweet <laughs> trimmings. Like, I, I want them. Like, I just don't want to go to waste. But um, yeah. yeah. I, anyway, it's so food. No, food waste is a massive part of the solution of doubling food production in the next 29 years. You know that that's yeah. a projected goal. Um, but we're that's not the sole way to get there. And absolutely, I mean, it, there is no sustainable food system without ruminant animal agriculture, period, full stop. Yeah, that's what I've come to understand. And I don't think, I think that 99% of people don't get that. They think, oh, we should all eat plants and then the world will be better. Right. I understand. And that's part of my passion. So, yeah, um, and I'm happy to help do whatever I can to help people at least become aware of that kind of information. I may not convince them uh initially but just to get the information out that there's lots of information for people to learn more about that fundamental reality mm -hmm. and then we could couple it with all the people who have discovered that for whatever reason a diet higher in naturally occurring fats which are going to typically include more animal fats than we've been told yeah. you know we should be consuming somehow produces an improvement in their health and the quality of their life yeah and then how do we weigh that against whatever again hypothesis that somebody has yeah i actually saw a statistic today in the uh the usda dietary guidelines pamphlet from 2020 to 2025 it was there's one if, if Americans eat six times more fat from vegetable oils than from animal fats. And that's right. coincident with the rise in obesity. And yet uh, people don't get the disconnect. As you were talking, I was thinking about the term. Um, I heard this on a podcast, logic bully, mm. which is like a funny, um, a, a funny uh, insult that one person threw at another on this podcast basically described like, you're putting together a really logical evidence-based argument and it's frustrating me because I can't defend against it. You're being a logic bully. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people like to hold on to their, their, uh, their null hypothesis and don't want to just give them up. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I think that's very typical in our society. It's like you come forward with information. It's like, I've changed my mind here, the data. And it's like, I don't want to hear it. You're being, they might not say it, but a logic bully and then turn away. Well, it, Again, there's very little that we do that's more personal than what we eat. Yeah. And if we invest a great deal in talking to other people about what we eat and we're, we're given information that may contradict that, then it, it becomes a personal thing. It's, it's transcended 
only logic or fact or whatever. And and against all of this, this was never about science. The dietary delusion, to use the the title of Gary's book from UK, it was never about science. It, science didn't get us to where we are now. It it was politics. It was vested interests. It was commercial gain that got us where we are. And so, yes, we need evidence to lead us forward, but we also have to address these other issues. But to your point of it becomes personal when someone who has made that kind of link between the diet I'm going to advocate and my personal identity now confronts evidence that says maybe that wasn't right, um, then you've got all kinds of other things to overcome. Yeah, it's like a uh, grossly ironic metasymmetry almost. If you're thinking about the way our healthcare systems uh, set up not to address these chronic diseases with these interweaving pathologies, insulin resistance, oxidative stress, inflammation. And then that just seems so analogous to me to the problems that are preventing us from finding the solution, which are social, cultural, like scientific, environmental, political. And those are all interweaving. So it's like you almost, I don't know what it would be, but you need a, a metabolic medicine approach to finding a metabolic medicine <laughs> approach in healthcare. Well, if that didn't I, I, make everybody confused. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> uh, my optimism is so many people are so sick that getting information more widely distributed to people yeah. will make improvements. And some yeah. of those people play in all those different areas. Yeah. And I think it's, yeah. Yeah, then like you, they have their passion in their area. And maybe then, again, I, I've heard it said that a tipping point is not 51%. It might be more like 18%. Yeah, I, I've heard the similar thing, like 16 to 18%. So yeah, the inflection point. And I think the sad thing is I just don't know how close to that inflection point we are. And it's also sad that we have to basically wait for people to get sick and desperate before we reach a point where this is, you know, standard run, it's like, okay, the evidence is there, the data are there. Like, we could just skip it. It seems unnecessary, but, you know, given the way things are, probably is necessary to let people get sick, get passionate, and then, you know, be the the thought leaders and the, the you know, people that set an example for others. We talked about these socially awkward situations, and, you know, more and more, I see people giving themselves permission to put their health first and be in that weird scenario where you're like, you're at the party. I'm like, nope, I'm not eating cake. I don't eat sweets. Like you bring me my dessert. You made it. Like, no, I don't do this. I'm sorry. It's yeah. awkward, but like, this is important to me. I'm putting my health first. If you have a problem with that, I'm sorry, but well, and then people you, see they benefit and then they follow suit. If, if you've made a decision that you're not going to drink alcohol yeah, and you go to a party and you're offered a drink, then no, thank you. I don't have to make a big deal about it. I just, yeah. You know, and and yes, there's also that, what, in Missouri, um, they'd rather watch a sermon than listen to one. Is that, um, so, yeah, your experience shows, okay, how many people are struggling, and I can think of a couple in my own personal orbit, how many people are facing what you've described, and yet here you are. You know, seven years later, two years later, three years later. I mean, this is remarkable. It's possible. And so between yourself, myself, and others, give people, I don't know that permission is the right word, but encourage people to explore other options. And yeah. you're not going to kill your heart, right? You're not going to destroy your bones, as you said, um, and I can help people understand that you're not going to destroy the planet. And the other part of it is, another of mine is, when you improve your health, you are improving the world. And maybe that's the most impactful thing that you can do, because then maybe that empowers you to do what you're now doing. 
you, Nick. Yeah. Or maybe it looks different for somebody else, or maybe you, we have no idea who's watching us, right? So yeah, no, maybe I, that's very astute. I mean, when I was sick, that's one of the things I thought about. It's like I'm a leech basically right now. Like a scholarship's giving me money to do a PhD that I can't do because I feel horrible. I'm in the hospital. The hospital's paying for me. My parents have supported me through college um, very nicely. And it's like, am I just going to piddle out and like be an investment that became nothing in the world? No. And then you regain your health. And then you're just like, well, now I can actually do something in the world. Yeah. Um, so that's a stupid point. I encourage you to continue on. If there's ever anything I can do to help, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Thank you so much. For I appreciate time. it. No, thank you. This was a lot of fun.